0: The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology, faster than thought possible, to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Hey, greetings everyone. Happy Thursday on a chilly Chilly Thursday here in Detroit. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me. We've got a lot coming up on the program today. A little bit later on, you remember that sinkhole in Fraser a few years back, that massive problem that actually swallowed up a couple of houses and created all kinds of havoc? Well, a new report was issued yesterday on what was responsible and the phrase a tsunami of waste. Was used to describe the problem. It's pretty accurate. I'll give you my thoughts on that in just a little bit. But we're going to begin the program today talking with our friend Paul Eisenstein of thedetroitbureau.com. He is fresh back from the Consumer Electronics Show, now known just as CES in Las Vegas. It's got a lot to say about what's going on there when it comes to the automotive industry and the future of the automotive industry. And we're also going to spend some time talking about Ford Motor Company, some big announcements from that company. We're getting clues that there's going to be some sort of strategic partnership with Volkswagen, which could be a game changer for the two companies. And we'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about the release of their new Ford Explorer, a vehicle that they have a ton, ton riding on. As they move forward, trying to attract new people to the brand. So joining us right now to begin the program is the aforementioned Paul Eisenstein, again, publisher of TheDetroitBureau.com, also a contributor to CNBC, among others. Paul, welcome. Pleasure to have you here. Welcome back to Detroit.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Well, let's let's talk a little bit about Ford Motor Company. The auto show starts in just a few days and Ford already making a lot of headlines, uh, industry headlines here. And they seem to be determined uh, to make a big splash at the show this year, uh, which is interesting. They showed off the Ford Explorer at a preview event last night, as a matter of fact. This is a hugely important vehicle for them. This redesign. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the vibe that was there, given some of the other news we're hearing about uh, Ford right now.
1: Ford's going through a massive amount of change. More coming in the next couple of weeks. That we're only getting, you know, the first sense of how the company will be transformed. Uh, Let's talk about the Explorer first, though, if that if that's all right. Uh, This is the best-selling SUV in history. Uh, Something like seven point seven million of them have been so introduced. Twenty what is it? Twenty seven years ago. Twenty eight years ago, Uh, and not the, the singular powerhouse that it was up until, say, the beginning of the the new millennium. It's still an extraordinarily important product. Uh, one of the powerhouses still in that large SUV segment. And Ford is making a series of changes with the vehicle. In uh, fact, it, they call architecture, another way of saying it, platform, platform. Uh, and that platform itself will be used for a variety of new vehicles, uh, including the, uh, the very important product for Lincoln called the Aviator. Uh, we're, we're told, and we've, we've actually gotten a look at the Aviator already, that they won't be badge-engineered. In other words, uh, Ford and Lincoln badges being the only difference. I think uh, everything I'm seeing is it's a very important and uh, got a lot of technology that should really – Play to the new generation of millennials, uh, millennials who are just getting into uh, SUVs for their family needs. It looks like they've done a spectacular job—a spectacular job of uh, of engineering it, not just basically tweaking and warming over the old model
0: yeah and that was a that was a big concern i mean let's let's talk about the amount of competition they're facing within this segment right now. I mean, when Ford came out with this and they were selling what three hundred and fifty thousand units a year or something like that yeah. uh yeah. there wasn't a whole lot out there like it uh but everybody is in this game now, and everybody's been upping their game quite a bit so mm-hmm. obviously they had a lot riding on this um You suggest that they've done a very very good job with this so far. Um, but what does Ford need to do to, to overcome some of that competition that's out there? Because this reputation as being a leader in this sort of truck and SUV segment has really been threatened in the last few years.
1: Yeah, it definitely has. You, you're seeing stuff coming everywhere. In in fact, uh, let's look at the Koreans who have been transformed over the last 10 years from being that uh, bargain basement uh, vehicle your brand uh, that you would buy only when you really didn't have enough money for anything else. Now, Kia and Hyundai are serious players, taken very seriously by people uh, who would, would have just ignored them or turned up their noses at them a, a while ago. And they both, Kia and Hyundai, are both launching New uh, vehicles roughly in this segment as well. Three row SUVs uh, like the Palisade from Hyundai and the uh, uh, the, the new one that, that Kia is bringing out. So uh, you're getting hit. They're getting hit at Ford from every angle. And it's very important that, that when the Explorer comes to market in, the, in just a couple of months, uh, that it be taken as really the benchmark of the segment. Uh, it's roomier. It's quicker. Uh, and and uh, as we know, technology is a big draw for the newer generations of buyers. That's very important. Uh, but it's interesting when I talked with a gentleman by the name of Hao Tai Tang, who is the global product development chief over at, at Ford and an extremely good executive, good product planning and development guy. Uh, he stressed that design remains the number one uh, purchase reason in that segment. So that's one of the reasons why Ford changed the platform, went from a front wheel drive base platform to a rear wheel drive base platform. Uh, that layout may sound odd, that that approach may sound odd, but it allows for different proportions. And what you get, it's, first of all, it's got a six inch larger wheelbase on the Explorer, but it also changes, uh, the basic look of it. And what you get is a very aggressive, sort of uh styling to the to the new explorer that visually tells you that it can go anywhere that it has performance it has muscle and uh with the all-wheel drive option that i think uh, perhaps half of the the buyers will go for i, I think they're going to be pleasantly surprised i'm looking forward to driving it that's for sure and i'm hoping that we'll have a ride and drive event uh, within the next month or three.
0: Well, you know, let me ask you about doing it uh, the way that they did. They had this event at, uh, I believe it was at Ford Field last night, um, where they yep. unveiled yep. this vehicle. Why there as opposed to actually just waiting until next, uh, next week at the show?
1: Well, it was clear that they weren't going to do uh, the initial background at the show. And uh, it, it was quite intriguing. Now, first of all, I had a chance to see the truck uh, at an event uh, a week ago. They did a, a smaller background for media at the, uh, what is that, the, uh, the the theater complex over in Dearborn. There were probably 100, 150 of us journalists from all over the country there. Uh, and then they had the event last night, which brought in a lot of other folks, particularly people from Ford, uh, but other folks as well. And they had a chance to do some spectacular tech, show off some spectacular technology, uh, literally turning the field into a screen so that you would see these vehicles driving on what looked like uh, basically highways and off-road trails and the like uh, that were projected onto the floor. It was quite an impressive. And actually, I got—I have to tell you, I was more intrigued by the technology used for this show than I was with the, uh, with the Explorer last night, possibly because I had seen the truck already.
0: Well, well, Paul, we, we have to talk about this, too. I mean, they, they also knew that they were going to get a lot of traction from this last night, and they probably don't want some of the news that's coming out next week to detract from some of the model releases that they're going to be doing. Uh, there's some reporting that um, they're going to announce perhaps as early as Tuesday some sort of strategic alliance with Volkswagen, which would be a, sort of a game changer in a lot of ways. What do we know at this point in time about what Ford and Volkswagen are talking about?
1: Mr. Farley, Jim Farley, who is their uh, global top executive and we talked quite a bit about vw uh he was very open in saying that yeah they have a good relationship they're negotiating uh there's talk that it could happen as early as tuesday that we'll hear an announcement uh i was told by another very senior source at ford that that is not a lock that there are still some things that have to be approved uh i'm betting by the boards of both companies so uh whether it happens tuesday or later in the week uh that we get the first look at this new relationship uh it's coming soon uh farley went on to make it pretty clear that there are a number of different things that they will be tying up with vw and that they will come in the uh, come in the uh be announced in the weeks and months that's a quote the weeks and months ahead uh so i think we're going to be seeing pieces drip out over time uh they'll range from a commercial vehicle alliance where they may develop and market uh, jointly uh, commercial vehicles, that this will tie up to work together on electrified vehicles, possibly autonomous vehicle vehicle technology, and more. Uh, It's very clear from what Farley said that uh, one thing is going to happen, that there will be situations where one maker or the other will essentially start taking control of marketing, in, in regions where one or the other has better better position. So uh, in North America, uh, we may see Ford take a lead in, in certain marketing issues. Uh, in Latin America, which has been a, a place where they're struggling, VW would likely take uh, a lead position. I think that that may happen. We'll see if China is involved in this. We don't know. Uh, in Europe. So uh, level of rationalizing. Now, I had the chance, Craig, to talk with Farley also about something that uh, has not gotten a lot of play. There's often a lack of institutional memory among the media, in part because, you know, a lot of folks who are reporting now haven't been around long. I'm ancient, as you know. And I, I reminded him that back in the 80s, there was a relationship with Ford and VW in Latin America, primarily Brazil and Argentina, that collapsed. It was called Auto Latina. Mm -hmm. and vw pulled out suddenly and left ford struggling uh it's it's a complex story i won't get into it but basically as a result of that breakup of auto latina vw came to dominate latin america ford became and also ran and it's never fully recovered uh farley's response was you have to protect your brands but he also said that ford has a long institutional memory and uh what happened down there back then is definitely something that they have considered when negotiating this deal.
0: My guest right now Paul Eisenstein of course he is the uh, publisher of the and a contributor to CNBC and a number of other uh, places as well uh, of course we're talking about the Detroit Auto Show which is getting ready to begin Ford Motor Company but Paul another huge show that takes place this time of year is the Consumer Electronics Show that uh, just wrapped up in Las Vegas you were there for that this show has changed quite a bit over the years um, and I know that the state of Michigan had like a big presence from the Michigan Economic Development Council and some others mm-hmm uh talk a little bit about what we're seeing there and what you were there to check out
1: yeah now first of all it's interesting that what has been known as a consumer electronics show now refers to itself as ces which i think that change reflects the fact that it's not just digital cameras televisions uh, audio systems and the like uh it is pretty much everything that has even a remote connection to technology it was interesting uh I saw a company I wouldn't have expected at CES. Uh, I saw Impossible Foods, a California startup that you may know is selling these incredible uh meatless burgers. These aren't the bean burgers that you normally get, but are actual uh you wouldn't know that they're not meat. If you're yeah, the Impossible
0: Burger, I think is what the they call it, right? The Impossible
1: Burger. Yeah, exactly, which is I love that thing. And they they were there uh, launching their second generation formula. So CES has gotten Uh, What you find is when you go to the Las Vegas Convention Center, which is where much of the, but not all, of the uh, CES is anchored, uh, virtually the entire South Hall is dedicated to automotive and transportation. We saw Bell helicopters there with the Nexus, a huge drone that will handle, what, about five or ten passengers and will be part of the Uber Elevate Uh, flying taxi system, uh, which they hope to get off the ground as early as 2023. So uh, transportation has become a major part of CES, with a big emphasis on automobiles. Uh, What about uh, almost 10 automakers, I believe, were at the show, and countless suppliers. That included traditional companies like Continental and Magna, but also a lot of startups, companies that are developing the technology that we'll see in our cars what we're already seeing in some cases on semi-autonomous technology and the manufacturers the suppliers of technology both software and hardware that will make for a very big transition perhaps a decade from now when more and more of the rides that people take will be in fully electric fully autonomous Vehicles operated by ride-sharing services like GM's Maven, uh, Google spinoff, Waymo, Lyft, Uber, and others.
0: Now, obviously, companies like this have taken on a larger role at the Detroit Show in recent years. We've seen a a big focus on what's going on with autonomous vehicles and and electrification. Um, Do you get a sense that the Detroit Show is becoming more aligned with CES in terms of their approach and the stuff that they want to focus on, or do they need to do more?
1: Well, the Detroit show's in a, in a tough bind right now, and and some of it's not of its own making. Uh, much of the problem that the Detroit show has is that this is primarily a Detroit car market. Uh, the foreign brands just don't sell nearly to the level that they do in other markets, in part because of uh, the fact that the big three all to just about anybody who, who wants to buy a car in this area. And so when you have a Mercedes or a, a, some of the other brands who've dropped out of the show, uh, they simply say, well, why are we spending million to $3 million to be on the floor of Kobo Center uh, when we're not going to sell cars there? Uh, sometimes they're here anyway because they look at the show as still a great media event, but that's why we have basically less than a full day of press conferences on Monday, Uh, at a show that once had three days of press conferences, official ones, and still more that were unofficial. Uh, So this is a transition that that, uh, Rod Alberts at the Detroit Auto Dealers Association and his team are struggling valiantly to deal with. But it's going to be a challenge for them, uh, even when they move to June and have the advantage of much better weather.
0: Well, one last question for you, Paul. Is there something you are actually looking forward to seeing at the Detroit show?
1: Oh, this I'm looking forward to. Uh, one of which is from a company that has remained a big supporter of this show, uh, even with all the changes, and that's Toyota. Uh, we're going to see the new Supra, and by the way, the Supra, which you may recall, was once one of the most popular sports cars in the country. Uh, it's returning for the first time in nearly two decades. Uh, the Supra really indicates the Huge transformation that's happening in this business. Now, in some cases, you have full on mergers and takeovers, as happened with Nissan essentially taking control of Mitsubishi. You have alliances that are being formed uh, that are very formal, uh, Nissan-Renault-Mitsubishi alliance, uh, to a lesser degree what's going to happen between Ford and VW. But then you have uh, uh, marriages that are more, uh, uh, you know, what, not one-night stands, but certain uh, deals that maybe one-offs that, that really just play out to a particular need of a company like Toyota, and in this case, BMW. So the new super we're going to be seeing uses the same underlying platform as the new BMW Z4. The two manufacturers simply couldn't afford to build those two vehicles, new generations of those vehicles, because of shifting market demands. Sales of them will not be near what they were in the past. So they had to find partners to work together. Uh, the critical thing was to make sure that they didn't look alike. So the uh, super will be a coupe. The BMW is a convertible, or roadster, and uh, there'll be a lot of differences in design. But the underlying platforms, and we're waiting to see, possibly even the engines, will be shared by the two manufacturers. This is a very different industry we're seeing today from just 10 or 15 years ago. And you really got a clear view at CES, and you will continue to see how the industry has changed at the North American International Auto Show just this coming week.
0: Well, we will be talking about that, of course, as the show wraps up next week, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. But, uh, Paul, we always appreciate your your insight, and uh, welcome back to Detroit. you got a busy week ahead.
1: I've got a busy week starting right this minute, so thanks, Craig, <laughs> good to be with you.
0: All right, Paul Eisenstein joining us, of course, publisher of thedetroitbureau.com and also contributor to CNBC and a frequent guest on this program. This is The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. <laughs> The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Welcome back to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me on this Thursday. Uh, you may recall, Back in 2016, uh, there was a massive, massive problem along 15 Mile up in Fraser. A giant sinkhole was created with the collapse of a massive sewage drain in that area. And if you don't remember exactly what that story was about, let me just sort of fill you in on some of the details about what happened. So this was um, right at the Fraser clinton Township border and you had a call on December 24th, 2016. So basically, this is the day before Christmas in 2016. People who were living in the neighborhood heard a popping sound outside their house. They went out of the house and to look, took a look, and bricks were falling off the house. It was actually sinking into the ground. And what ended up happening was a 100-foot-wide, 250-foot-long sinkhole. 22 homes were evacuated in that area, and the repair project, uh, which basically done was done in about a year But it was a $75 million price tag for people in that region. $75 million. And of course, there's going to be a fight over who's responsible for this, who's going to have to pay for it. Will the insurance cover it? Is this something that's going to be tacked onto residents' bills in that community? Well, there was a report that was issued yesterday about this. And like I said, we're far from being done with it. But part of the issue is finding out why it happened in the first place. Now, what we learned yesterday was that it was basically human error that caused this. Now, they had closed off parts of the pipe. There were workers inside doing some maintenance work to some of the underground pipes. And they normally, what they'll do in that situation is turn off the flow of waste to those pipes so they can do the work. You don't want people drowning in there, obviously. But typically what they will do when they're getting ready to reopen the pipe is gradually, gradually release that water so it doesn't overload the system. Well, what it looks like happened is that they opened it all at once, creating what they called, what Candace Miller, who of course is a drain commissioner in Macomb County, she called it a tsunami of waste, which by itself is a really disgusting sort of thought. But they're supposed to do it gradually, but records show that it was opened all at once. Now, what this did was causing hairline fractures in the pipe. And then, of course, that drew stuff from outside the pipe into it, which created a void of support that eventually collapsed. Now, when it collapsed, that's when we had the real, real problems. And this was an accident. They didn't mean to do it this way, but it was definitely human error. Now, they're filing a claim with their insurance company in Macomb County right now to see whether or not they can reclaim some of the $75 million. I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen there. But $75 million in repairs. And they said that the insurance company should cover this. However, I have a feeling that the insurance companies may indeed fight some of these aspects, especially if indeed there was any sort of negligence involved. They're going to want to take a look at that. And they're going to take a look at their own reports and everything else. So this is far from being done at this point in time. And there's far from a guarantee that they're going to actually get this money. I have a feeling they'll get reimbursed for a lot of it. But think about what was going on. $75 million in repairs. That doesn't even include the damage to the houses and the people that were relocated. There's a lot more that's involved there. And so we have an interesting situation. The thing is, they don't have an explanation right now for why protocol was not followed when they opened that sewage gate, allowing that so-called tsunami of waste to impact the pipe. And so basically, it slammed up against it, created real weakness in the pipe, which then eventually collapsed, creating a situation which inconvenienced a ton of people and frankly, cost some people their homes. They had to leave. They were not salvageable at that point in time. So this was a huge problem, and I don't know if you were ever driving through that area while they were doing the repair, but it was a massive, massive undertaking for you know what seems like not a whole lot of space. But again, when you had 22 homes that were evacuated as a result of this, $75 million in repairs. And again, there's a lot of other stuff that's involved in this one. But it's a really gross image if you think about what a tsunami of waste And it also highlights what we need to do with our infrastructure in this area. This is a great example of the stuff that we don't see typically, that we don't think about, that is all going to need to be repaired. You cannot keep putting this maintenance off forever. Things like this will happen. So if you think about this, we've got a lot of things that we don't see. Underground pipes, sewer lines that are all aging. They're aging rapidly And when they fail, and they fail catastrophically like in this situation, they impact a whole lot of people. If you take a look at some of the other things that have happened in Macomb County recently, they had the Fatberg. I don't know if you remember that. Basically just a mass of of waste and gross things uh, that they basically have to get out of the system or else it reduces the flow and creates problems. People using flushable wipes creating massive problems underground that we don't see. But we're talking billions and billions of dollars in infrastructure repairs that are going to need to be done around the country, especially infrastructure on our water system. Out of sight, out of mind, it's not the kind of sexy project that people like to spend tax dollars on, but if we don't do this kind of stuff, these types of things will happen more often. And so, some of us were pleased when the President talked about Infrastructure Week earlier in the year, that uh, earlier last year, but that hasn't really amounted to much at this point in time. At least... There's an acknowledgement that we need to do something about this. And maybe we'll come to some sort of a realization at some point that this is something that we're all going to have to pay for. We are going to have to pay for it as we expand further out into the suburbs. We put more stress on the systems, more desire, more need to create new parts of the system. And we already have a storm runoff issue in this area. And we haven't dealt with it effectively yet but this was just one big example of what's lurking underneath and what sorts of problems we have. And if we keep ignoring stuff, little mistakes like this or mistakes like this are not something the system can always handle. And it leads to very expensive repairs rather than maintenance, which could have prevented this type of problem or following proper protocol, which could have prevented this problem. So if you think about that, this is something that took two years. They said the initial problem was done in 2014, the initial mistake of, of letting that gate open and let all that stuff in. It took almost two years for it to actually do its, its total damage. But again, out of sight, out of mind. Nobody thought about it until bricks started popping off of people's houses and they started to sink into the ground. We need to know what's going on with our infrastructure and we need to think about what it's going to take to repair it so this stuff doesn't happen in more communities. This isn't something that only happens here. This is a nationwide problem that we have. When we think infrastructure, we tend to think about roads and fixing the damn roads. Well, you know what? We also need to fix the damn sewers. And we need to fix the damn water lines, as we witnessed in Flint. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be done that we're going to have to pay for at some point in time. And until we have a good, robust debate on exactly what the needs are, we're not going to be able to really discuss what it's going to cost all of us. We need to talk about this stuff, and we need to do it soon. I appreciate you listening to The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thanks for being with me on this Thursday. I really do appreciate it very, very much. And I just want to wrap up with one thing that um, we'll be watching pretty carefully here at Deadline Detroit. I'll be watching it, of course, myself. And that is the change in power in Oakland County. For the first time, pretty much in most of our lifetimes, the power shift is taking place in Oakland County. Democrats have taken over the county commission. Now, it's 11 to 10, so it's not exactly a massive massive majority for the democrats but this is a county that has been basically controlled by the republicans and of course uh the longtime county executive elbrooks patterson now elbrooks patterson is now 80 years old but he says he has no he's not uh, planning to step down anytime soon and may even seek another term as county executive however this is a change with democrats in charge of all the committees they get to set the agenda on the committees they get to appoint different people to the committees. And that's something that El Brooks Patterson has basically been in charge of since he's been there. Now, it's not going to mean a massive shift in Oakland County, but it certainly is going to mean better representation for people in southern Oakland County where the demographic changes are taking place. There's a lot of money that goes to parks and recreation in that county, but most of those parks and recreation activities have been centered in northern Oakland County where there's more open space. And people in the southern part of the county have been complaining for a long time that some of their facilities are not getting the type of attention that they deserve. So that's just one aspect of how this is going to work. The other one is the Finance Committee in Oakland County. That is something that has been tightly controlled by Brooks Patterson and his team for a long time. That is something that is now going to change. And of course, Democrats in the county are basically saying, we're taking the power back. So you're not going to have Brooks Patterson setting committee agendas for the Finance Committee any longer. That's something that the Democrats are going to be responsible for. Now, what does that mean? Well, what does it mean? It just means that they get to determine which things they would like to focus that agenda on, bring attention to. And so there could be a lot of different things that they want to discuss on this one. So maybe it's going to be something about, again, infrastructure, property taxes, the park system, and what's going to happen there. Either way, Oakland County is representative of a huge demographic shift that is taking place in the reason that we saw play out in the last elections, in that a number of districts that were pretty beat red for a long time went blue this time around, and that's a changing shift in the population that is taking place in Oakland County, and the county commission has now caught up with that. It actually caught up a few years ago. However, some political changes and some shenanigans in the legislature prevented the Democrats from taking the majority a few years ago. However, that has now changed. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, we only have one vote majority for the Democrats, so it's not as if they're going to be able to run wild. But there has been a lot of cooperation over the years between Democrats and Republicans in in uh, Oakland County. There's a number of, of unanimous votes that have taken place on different issues. But the interesting thing is, the veto power that Brooks Patterson has is not as solid as it once was. So it's going to be interesting to see how they determine they want to use this newfound power in Oakland County. But county politics don't get a lot of attention all the time. They're not the sexiest thing. Again, I talk about Lansing being important. Well, your local county government is important as well. So watching what they decide to do, how they relate to El Brooks Patterson, It'll be interesting to see how they decide to do that and and whether or not they want to be too aggressive. So that's interesting to see. And it's something that we'll be watching pretty closely here. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention. We talked a little bit about it after the election, but it is time now to to take a deeper look. Now that they are taking uh, action, they are actually starting to meet now. And we'll see what these agendas start to look like and what issues rise to the top in Oakland County. So, it should be fun. Interesting times that we live in this has been the craig folly show on deadline detroit i'm glad you're here with me today we will be back tomorrow got lots of stuff to talk about tomorrow is actually going to be on video it'll be the friday follies we're going to be live at the buell bar of course that's where we like to do that so uh that's going to be a lot of fun Just remember, that's just a half an hour of us making fun of the news of the week. And I'll tell you what, we've got plenty of stuff to make fun of this week once again. So don't miss that. That's going to be tomorrow. Thanks for joining me today. I always appreciate you being with me and listening to what I have to say. And again, send me some feedback. Just send an email to Show at gmail.com. Don't forget, I'm on social media as well. Uh, You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. In fact, look up The Craig Show on Facebook. There's links to all the different ways that you can get this. And of course, you can always send me comments there, and I will get them, and I will read them, and we can start conversations. So that'll be a lot of fun. Okay, anyway, have a great day. Have a great uh, Thursday on this sunny but cold day, and we will talk again tomorrow. Be ready for the Friday Follies. I certainly am. We'll talk soon. Thanks for being here.